We stand on the solid rock of Christ and we know as His church that He has given us His Word. And through this Word that we might grow and build on that foundation, the church that He's called us to be. And so if you would turn to Acts chapter 2 this Lord's Day as we read about the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the life of those early disciples, the establishment of Christ's church. And as we look to this Word, be reminded of where we are in the text. The last couple of weeks as we've been looking at Acts, we've learned about how after the resurrection of Christ, He taught the disciples and, and gave them that great promise as well as a challenge. The challenge was they were to be His witnesses uh, throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the promise was they would be empowered by His Holy Spirit to be His witnesses. We've talked about how Christ gave this great mandate to the apostles and, and they would have been excited then to go out and, and do what He called them to do and yet He told them to wait. To wait so that they might see that they were indeed not going to go in their own efforts. They would go in the power of the Spirit. And today we will read in Acts chapter 2 about the time when that Spirit then came as they had waited and how the Spirit worked among them. And my prayer is that we would learn not only about the work of the Holy Spirit today, but that we might be more open to seeing that work in our own lives, pursuing God's Word, asking Him to bless us as He blessed His early church. Out of reverence for the Word of God, if you would stand as I read for us this text, if you're able. This is what the holy inspired Word of God says to us. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. If you would, let's pray together. Father God, we do pray that you would use this year word in our lives and that you would bless it as we've read it. That you would help us to understand it. That you would help us to see the gospel in it. And Father, I pray and ask in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would draw us to repentance and faith today. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On March 11th of 1898, a teenager named Peter 
Dynika sailed from his home country of Russia, bound for Nova Scotia. Peter would go on to become a great evangelist, and he would always remember a lesson that God would teach him through this journey. You see, Peter came from a very humble family who didn't have very many means, and so it had taken them months and months and months to save, to buy the passage for him on this ship that would take him literally to the other side of the world. After spending all their money on the passage, they didn't really have much left to pay for his food, and so his mother packed for him bread and garlic to sustain him through that journey. And so each day, Peter would go to his room and he would eat the the dry bread and the garlic, and then afterwards, he would find his way to the window of the dining hall. And Peter would look through that window and he would see as the the, the more wealthy passengers were there eating their extravagant meals, course after course, and he would long to have the food that they got to eat. Some of the other sailors who worked on the ship noticed his plight, and so they came to Peter with an arrangement. They said if he would do their work for them, if he would do their, take care of their responsibilities, then they would ensure that he could eat the food that the other passengers were eating. And so Peter agreed to this deal and he got up early in the morning. He worked hard throughout the day. And as a result of his labor, he was able to enjoy the meals that those other passengers got to enjoy as well. It wasn't until the end of the journey that Peter found out that the meals he had worked so hard for were actually included in the price of the ticket his family had bought him. You see, he had worked and he had labored for something that was already his, that already belonged to him. He just didn't realize it. He didn't understand what it was he had. When I think about that story, I think about the church of Christ today. And I think of how we labor and we work and in our own efforts we try so hard to live the Christian life when God has already given us the power to live the Christian life. Jesus promised His disciples that the Holy Spirit would empower them. He has made that same promise to us today. And yet we, like young Peter on that ship, live ignorant of that promise so often. And so we try and we labor and we work and we think if we can just try hard enough not to sin and if we can try hard enough to do good things, we'll be okay. And at the end of the day, we just find ourselves frustrated. And at the end of the day, many of us give up because the Christian life was not meant to live in our own efforts. Christ has given us a better way. And we find that way in today's text. The power of the Holy Spirit that came on the early church is the same Spirit that empowers the church today. And yet we are so often ignorant of that power. We are so often neglectful when it comes to understanding what the Scripture teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And so today I hope that as we walk through this passage that God might enlighten you and I to better understand who the Holy Spirit is and why the Holy Spirit has been given to Christ's church. We'll begin by looking at the first point there in your notes. Point one, the Holy Spirit we find in the Scripture gives us new life in Christ. The very first thing we see in this passage is that the the day of Pentecost had arrived. Uh, Pentecost was a festival that the Jewish people celebrated. It was actually called the Festival of Weeks because 
it occurred after a week of weeks. And so you took seven weeks, 49 days, and then the 50th day was when this festival would begin. Pentecost, the word actually means 50th. And Jews would come from all over the world to gather there in Jerusalem. It occurred then 50 days after Passover. Uh, Passover would occur in April, and so the Pentecost celebration would occur at the end of May, sometimes early June. That's significant because that was the most favorable time for travel in the culture in that region of the world. And so people literally would come from the ends of the earth and descend there on Jerusalem for this festival, for this gathering. The Jewish people believed that Pentecost marked the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so when God gave the law to Moses and to His people, they believed that the anniversary of that then fell on Pentecost. So they would gather from all over the world, they would come there to Jerusalem, they would celebrate this festival, and they would remember the law that God had given. And so it's no coincidence that it would be at that very time that the Lord would give His Spirit to His church. He would give it to them at the time when they were remembering that no matter how much they tried to obey the law, they always fell short. The law exposed them of their sin. It simply led them to death. And yet the Spirit would come and give them life. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Verse 2 gives us the description of what takes place. It says, as they're gathered there together, suddenly there came from heaven like a mighty Rushing wind, the Spirit of God. And there's more taking place here than just a a description of an event. Uh, The Jewish people, as they were reading these words later, as they were pinned down, would understand significantly what's being described here. You see, in the original languages, in Hebrew of the Old Testament and Greek of the New Testament, that, that word wind was also a word that could be used for spirit and also used for the word breath. And so you had words that were somewhat interchangeable for spirit, wind, and breath. And that's the word, that's the terminology that's being used here to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. So why is that significant? Well, it's significant when you consider the use of those terms throughout the landscape of Scripture. It's significant when you look at how the Spirit is at work throughout the Scripture. So you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And if you remember in our study of Genesis chapter 1, you have there in the beginning the creation of the world. And the Spirit of God is active in the creation of the world. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us the Holy Spirit of God is there. And the text says the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we hear that word hovering and we think of stillness. We think of observing. And yet what that word means in the original language is more a sense of movement. In fact, you could say in Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God was moving like the wind over the surface of the earth involved in the creation of all things. We see that same life-giving Spirit at work then in Genesis chapter 2. You remember in Genesis 2 where God creates Adam and Eve. And He creates Adam out of the dust of the ground. And so the picture the Scripture gives us is that God creates Adam as a corpse. And there Adam is laying lifeless and still. And the Scripture tells us that God breathes life into him. 
There again we have this picture of the movement of the Spirit, not only in creation of all things, but in the creation of man, breathing life into man. As you continue throughout the Scripture, you see this same life-giving purpose behind the Holy Spirit and in the way that the Holy Spirit moves. And so a passage I reminded us of not too long ago, Ezekiel 37 is a perfect picture of this. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel has this vision of a valley of dry bones. Essentially what Ezekiel sees is what we would see if all those graves behind the church were exposed. He looks out and he sees a valley and there's all these bones in the valley. And you might think, well, what's the purpose in that? Well, what the purpose is, is Ezekiel looks at that valley of dry bones and then God tells him that he's going to breathe on those bones. And when he breathes on those bones, all of a sudden, those bones stand up and they have flesh on them and they come to life. This is what we see when we see the Spirit of God at work in the Old Testament. We see the Spirit of God creating. We see the Spirit of God bringing life. And that's significant then when you come to the New Testament. It helps us then to understand the New Testament. For example, in John chapter 3, you've got that familiar encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, if you'll remember, in the night, and he's asking Jesus all these questions, and he wants to better understand Jesus. He, he says Jesus is a great teacher, and, and, and he knows he's sent from God. And that's the passage where Jesus says, Nicodemus, you really want to understand things. You need to be born again. And if you remember, Nicodemus is quite confused as to how can I be born again, and Jesus is describing for him what it means to respond to the gospel, what it means to become a new creation. Jesus describes that by saying this. He says to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now most of us, when we hear John chapter 3 and we hear that passage, we think, well, I'm sure that means something, but I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> uh, Jesus here is making an observation perhaps about the weather. The wind blows where it wishes. Okay, Jesus, we all understand that, but what's it mean to be born again? Well, Jesus here isn't just making an observation about the weather. Uh, Jesus here is teaching Nicodemus and teaching us about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus here essentially is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I want you to go back to creation. And there where you see the Spirit of God creating, there where you see the Spirit of God breathing life into man, there in the Old Testament where you see the Spirit of God raising old dead bones and bringing them to life, Nicodemus, that's what you need to be born again. You need the Spirit of God to come. Like the wind, you need the Spirit of God to come and make you alive in Christ. You see, friend, that's exactly what God does through the Gospel. And that's where we see the Holy Spirit at work in the Gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life in Christ. And so while you were not dry bones laying on the ground while you were born into this world while you have flesh on you while you've been walking around and perhaps up to this moment felt like everything's been moving along just fine the scripture says spiritually you and i are born dead the scripture says you and i have a a cold dead heart 
And that we, like Nicodemus, we need to be reborn. We need to be spiritually made alive. And the Scripture says that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen through persuasion. It doesn't happen through you being convinced of something. It doesn't happen when you decide, well, I want to stop living this way and start living this way. It happens when the Spirit of living God comes into your life like the wind blows where it will. And that Spirit brings life to you. And what happens in that moment is suddenly you can see what you did not see before. You can hear what you could not hear before. You can believe what you did not believe before. And that's why perhaps for you, you have a testimony like mine. I grew up sitting in churches like this, on occasion hearing the gospel in church and in other places. But something happened when I was 17 years old and someone sat down with me and opened up the Scriptures to me and began to tell me about the Gospel of Jesus, a Gospel I'm sure I'd heard before, and that something was the Holy Spirit. It was as if the blinders just fell from my eyes. It was as if it was a different language all my life, and suddenly it was in a language I could understand. And in that moment, I responded to the Gospel of Jesus Christ through repentance of faith. And that is the call that God places on our life. That's the work of the gospel. And that's how we see the Holy Spirit at work in God's Word and in our lives today. And that's exactly how we see the Holy Spirit at life, at work in Pentecost. At this time when God had brought people from all these different nations there to Jerusalem. At this time when they were celebrating the law of God, this would be a time the Spirit would come and He would give life. But it's not that only that He did. We also see point two. It's the Holy Spirit then who guides and directs God's people. We see in this passage that the Holy Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind. He fills the entire house. And then verse 3 tells us, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now oftentimes when we speak of Pentecost, when we read about Pentecost, that's pretty much where we camp out. We talk about tongues. In fact, most of you, if I were to ask you before today's lesson sermon about Pentecost, you would probably say something about, well, that's when the, the, the disciples started speaking in all these different tongues. But the tongues are actually the, the fruit. They're, they're, they're the application in a sense of what it is God is doing. And sometimes we, we miss out on that bigger picture because we just look at that. One of the things we miss out on is what we see in this verse. The significance of those tongues appearing as fire on each of the disciples. That, that word fire has great significance, much like the, the symbolism of wind did, that word wind throughout the Old Testament. You think about how we saw fire in our study of Genesis, how you see fire in the Old Testament. You think about Genesis 15, when God cuts that covenant with Abraham. If you'll remember, we talked then about how in the culture of that day for Abraham, uh, people made arrangements, they made covenants a little different than you and I do today. Uh, for most of us, we go to an attorney's office, we sign lots of papers, and we hope the other person lives up to the agreement we've just made. But in Abraham's day, it was very different. In Abraham's day, they would actually take livestock, and they would cut that livestock in half. They would place the halves on either side of a path, 
And then the two people making the agreement together would walk together in between those animals. It's somewhat of a grotesque picture, but it has great significance. Because what the two parties were saying was this, if you don't uphold your end of the deal, may it so be to you as it was to these animals. It's a little bit more serious than a pen and paper, don't you think? And yet what we see with God and Abraham is that God does not say to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and Abraham, you and I are going to pass through this path together. No, in Genesis 15 what happens is God cuts a covenant with Abraham, but then God alone is the one whose presence moves between those animals. And what God is saying to Abraham there is that He is the one who keeps the covenant. He is the covenant-keeping God. And do you remember how it is the presence of God moves between those animal parts? It's through fire. The Scripture tells us that God goes through those as, in the, excuse me, as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. The way God's presence is represented there is through fire. And it's not just there. Think about what God does in the book of Exodus. God comes to Moses and calls him to lead the people out of captivity. And how does He do that? He comes to him in a burning bush. And the Scripture says the Lord speaks through that burning bush, that fire, He speaks and directs Moses. And not just there, but during the Exodus itself, how does God lead His people out of captivity? He leads them at night through fire. They follow the fire. It represents the very presence of God. Why is this significant to our study today? Because what we see throughout the Old Testament is this picture of fire representing the presence of God, representing the guidance of God, representing the direction of God. And that significance when we come to the understanding of what the Holy Spirit does and this Holy Spirit being represented in Acts 2 through the fire that is there on each of the disciples. It helps us to better understand, for example, what John the Baptist is saying in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is there, if you'll remember, baptizing people, calling them to repentance. But John the Baptist is there to prepare the way for Jesus. And what he says to the people is, one is coming after me, and that's who you need to respond to. And specifically, he says of Jesus that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John the Baptist there wasn't just saying, well, my baptism's pretty good, but Jesus' baptism is really neat and, and it's like fire. He's not just trying to make some exaggerated comment. What he's saying here is that the Spirit that you see at work in the Old Testament, that representation of God, the fire that leads, that guides, that is the very presence of God, Jesus will baptize you in such a way that you will be indwelt by the very presence of God. That God's Spirit will lead you and God's Spirit will guide you. That's why Jesus says Himself in John 14, the Spirit would be our helper. The Spirit would be the Spirit that would lead us to truth. Specifically, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that just as God led His people through that representation, that presence of fire in the Old Testament, now you will have one in you who will lead you, who will guide you, and who will teach you all truth. Not only will He give you life, 
He will teach you how to walk in light of that new life that you have and I have in Christ. And that's what we see here happening at Pentecost as the Spirit comes and the Spirit fills. But that's not all that we see. We see point three, that the Holy Spirit then glorifies God by making Him known among the nations. We see the fruit, the evidence of this filling, of this coming in the life of these disciples. The Scripture says specifically, there were people dwelling there in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Again, I've mentioned that this festival would attract people Jews from the ends of the earth. There's no way for us to know exactly how many Jews were in Jerusalem during this time, but the estimates go into the millions. And so you can imagine this this moment when, when millions have come to celebrate this festival, how now God will work in His perfect timing for them to hear the Gospel, the Scripture tells us, each in their own language. And I want you to notice something about that. The one who is glorified in Acts chapter 2 is not the disciples, it's God. He's the one whose mighty works are told. So often today, when we speak of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's spoken of in such a way that draws attention to people, that draws attention to individuals. That is not what we see in Acts chapter 2. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is God using His people for His glory so that the nations might hear the gospel of Jesus. Here the Scripture tells us specifically that what the Spirit was saying to these men was testimony of the mighty works of God. So consider that for a moment. You have people from all these different languages together in a place. If, If you've ever been somewhere where you did not understand the language, you've been around other people speaking other languages, you know that's a confusing time. You can't understand what they're saying, they can't understand what you're saying, and so your communication is at a bare minimum. But here in this moment, when all these people are gathered from different nations, all of a sudden, God's Spirit does something miraculous. All of a sudden, these disciples are speaking in other tongues. Not tongues that no one can understand, Not tongues that need interpretation, but they are speaking specifically in languages of people that are gathered around them. And those people then are not only understanding those languages, but now they're hearing the disciples tell them in their own language about the mighty works of God. And so those disciples are probably going back to creation and saying, listen, the same God who created is the God who is now giving you the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus. That Spirit was testifying about how Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and yet even then God promised a Redeemer would come. That Spirit was helping them to understand that some of them likely had been there at the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Spirit would say to them, this Jesus whom you crucified, He is the one to whom you need to bow. The Spirit is testifying about the mighty works of God in all these different languages. And it's amazing when you consider how all those languages came to be in the first place. You remember in our study of Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, there's one language. When the world grows corrupt and God brings the flood and puts Noah and his family on the ark, there's one language. 
And then we get to Genesis chapter 12 and God says, there's one language, but there's a problem. All the men had come together and they were seeking to bring glory to themselves instead of bringing glory to God. And so they build for themselves this tower, the tower at Babel. And there, that tower that they built, if you'll remember from our study, was an attempt to bring glory to themselves and to worship false gods. So what does God do? God brings judgment on them, but He also shows them His grace. God could have easily obliterated them in that moment and been done with them. But He doesn't do that. In His grace, He confuses their languages so that they can no longer cooperate together, and so they will then be driven to the ends of the earth because they can't communicate with one another. But as He does that, and throughout the Old Testament, He says to them, one day... He will gather the nations back together for His glory. And what do you see happen in Acts chapter 2? All of these nations, all these different languages are now gathered in Jerusalem. And now all these different nations, all these different languages are hearing with one voice through the Spirit of God testimony to the mighty works of God. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is very much a reversal of what we see in Genesis chapter 11, in the Tower of Babel. There God brings judgment and confusion. And in Acts chapter 2, He shows His grace and His mercy, and He brings the opportunity to response. We're going to look at that response next week as we look at Peter's sermon. But for now, I want to make sure you and I note the work we see the Spirit doing among His people then. And then we look around and see the church today. There we see people of all different nations responding to the gospel. And today, what do we see? So often, we don't see much. So often, we just go through the motions. So often, we feel this burden, this need that we should be talking to other people about the gospel, and yet we don't. And oftentimes, we don't for the same reasons. Oftentimes, we'll say things like, well... You know, that person, they, just, they, they know so much of the Bible, I'm not really sure I can tell them anything. Or I'm not sure what to say if they ask this question. Or, well, if they really wanted to come to church, they know how to get here. And we pre-qualify them and come up with all these reasons not to talk to people about the Gospel of Jesus. That is not what we see happening at Pentecost. In fact, at Pentecost... We don't see any conversation at all between the disciples as to what they should or shouldn't do and how the people may or may not respond. What we see is a group of men who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and begin to testify to the mighty works of God. And friends, we need to remember that today. Because for whatever reason, we've kind of fallen in this routine of thinking that somehow we've got to do the work of evangelism. We've got to do the work of making people believe the gospel. We've got to present things in such a way that they're going to respond. That's not the picture we see in Acts chapter 2. The picture we see in Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit of God moving and working in such a way and giving life. And so you and I need to consider when we think of those people that we think are so far gone, when we think of those people that we think, well, there's no way they're going to respond to the gospel. We need to think of that corpse of Adam that God breathed life into through the Spirit. 
We need to think of that valley of dry bones, lifeless bones, a graveyard that God through the Spirit then breathed life into. If God can do that through a graveyard, why don't we think He can do that in the life of our loved one, of our friend, of our coworker, of our neighbor? I think we don't think so much about it because we're so self-dependent, we're so independent. And we've not relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's time in the church of Christ for us to remember it is the Spirit who brings life. It is the Spirit who guides and directs. It is the Spirit who empowers us to take the Gospel to the nations. And so today, I'm not asking you or myself for us to try harder as a church. I'm not laying out for you a ten-point plan through which we're going to reach this community and reach the the world with the gospel. I'm simply asking you and myself to consider what we read in Acts chapter 2. And perhaps as we read it, to get on our knees and to pray that God through the power of His Holy Spirit would move in the life of the people of our community, in our state, in our nation, and in the world. And just as He did with us, that He would remove the blinders from their eyes, that He would help them to see and believe and respond. I'm not asking you or I to try harder. I'm asking us to stop trying. To get on our knees and to seek God. And if we will do that, I believe we may see just a taste of what was seen in Acts chapter 2. We might see some dry bones come to life. We might see the breath of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God move in people's lives. Or, we can keep doing what we've been doing and we can keep seeing what we've been seeing. But I think God's called us to something more. And so today I will ask you as I've asked the last two weeks and as I will be asking many weeks to come during this time of response as we certainly invite people to come forward and join the church and confess Christ. I want to ask each one of you to pray for someone that you know who's lost. And if you don't know somebody who's lost, to pray that God would bring a lost person into your life this week. And to pray by name for that person that God's Spirit might so work in them and bring them to conviction and repentance and faith. And that God would empower you and use you in that process. So church, if you would stand together and if you would pray with me. Father God, we do come to You in the name of Jesus. And Father, I do pray that You would preach a sermon to our hearts that only You can preach through Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that You would burden us for people who don't know Christ. Lord, that You would break us for people who don't know Christ. I pray, God, that You would place in our minds now and on our hearts in the days to come, people in our lives who aren't in this or any other church today. Perhaps they're people who one day walked an aisle. Perhaps they know how to speak religiously. Perhaps they know the terms to use, but their heart is not yours. And Lord, You know their heart. So Lord, would You burden us for people in our lives? Would You burden us for those who don't know Christ? And Lord, would You help us to see what You need from Your church is not more effort. It's not more steps. It's not more methods or more gimmicks. What You need is broken people 
dependent on Your Spirit to move. And Lord, just as we see Your Spirit moving throughout the Old and New Testaments, would Your Spirit be at work and move through our church and our community? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, during this time of response again, I ask that You would pray for those who need to hear the Gospel, that You would pray that God would empower you to be a witness to them. And as the Lord leads, that you would respond. If He's leading you to join this church to confess Christ, we certainly invite you to do that. We ask you all to respond to God's word as He leads.